understanding that weird book of Revelation. I wasn't sure how to take it this morning when they announced the topic tonight as that weird book of Revelation. It's actually understanding that weird book of Revelation. That's the goal. Tonight, uh, a bit of an overview. We have a lot in the service tonight, as I think about it. We have uh, our communion service, a prayer for needs, and so... I want to try and cover this. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. Let me read it to you. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. I'll talk about that. That's an interesting phrase. You you didn't know there were seven. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This next phrase should be familiar because I had it put on the plaque at the dedication of our church. Most churches have, to the glory of God, 1982 or whatever. And if you go out tonight, when you walk out the door, you'll see this verse. To him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his own blood. And made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, verse 9, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's all he did wrong. I was preaching the word of God and talking about Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying write what you see in a book not a book like like this it would be like a parchment and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia Laodicea and then I, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, so now this vision starts, okay, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire 
His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. You ever been to Niagara Falls? Stood right at the edge. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Okay, this is a vision that he sees. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Not even supposed to look at it. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not. So we know why he fell. This wasn't the anointing. This was fear. Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore. We talked about that this morning. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Those that are, those that are to take place after this. So he tells him, right, there's going to be more visions. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so where do you, where do you start with a text like that? We can learn a lot about the letter, this letter. Revelation. It's not revelations, plural. It's just revelation. By the way it begins. So, so the structure of the letter, it sends out a message about the intention behind the letter. So there's a lot of the book, we'll see, that has to do with things that are to come. Prophecy in the sense of foretelling. Having said that, I still don't think, while we'll study all that stuff in weeks to come, that the primary purpose of the letter is so people can chart out when the rapture is going to happen and how long the tribulation is going to be and all those events. You've seen the guys on TV and the big graphs behind them and they got it all figured out. The fact that that isn't the whole point of the letter is made clear in that very first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ... which God gave him to show his servants the thing that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. So the the letter, it says, there's things to come, and it's going to talk about that. But even before that is said, we're told this is a revelation not just of future events. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Not just a revelation from Jesus Christ, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. About Jesus Christ. So this is a letter that includes the future, but it's a letter about the person of Christ. It's it's a letter about his unimaginable power, glory, faithfulness, ministry, his person, not at the end of the age, but right now, for us. Good news for people at the end of time and good news for people at the end of their rope whenever that happens to be. In the next little bit, 
here's what I'm going to do. You've got them in your notes. I want to just give you a, 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 a flyover, like a Google Earth flyover of the book of Revelation and what's coming, what it's about. The first chapter, we'll kick it off tonight and get into it, deals with the worship of the saints with a vision of the exalted and risen Christ. So you get to see the throne room presently. And Jesus Christ at the center of all that worship and adoration. It's a lot like, you know, Isaiah uh, 6, where he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple and all of those. It's, it has that kind of a feel to it, what he sees about Jesus Christ right now. Then chapter 2 and 3 deal with uh, Christ's warning, Christ's encouragement to his church. And you have letters to the churches. Those churches, you'll see when we get there, they aren't just symbols. Those were specific local congregations, like the church at Newmarket. They represent the church in general with the kind of situations the church has always faced. But they aren't just imaginary churches. Symbolic churches. They are literal congregations. You could go to the map and say, there's that one, there's that one, there's that one, there's that one. So they're churches, congregations. Chapters 4 and 5 introduce the theme of the risen Redeemer's authority over the course of this world's history. 4 and 5. And those two chapters, 4 and 5, they sort of set the stage for the visions that are going to follow. The most lengthy portion of the book, chapters 6 through 19, it sets out a, a detailed discussion of the coming judgment of God on this rebellious world. This is where I believe, this is me, the most confusion comes at this point in the book of Revelation. The, 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 the coming judgment of God on this world is portrayed under... Three sets of symbols. So you have seven seals. It's in 6, 1 to 8, 5. Then you have seven trumpets. That's 8, 6 to 11, 19. And then you have seven bowls. 15 and 16. Let me just pause. I can't pause much. Quick pause. To me, the chief point of confusion in the book of Revelation comes here with this extensive portion which deals with the coming judgment of God on this world. And so you have seven seals. John weeps because no one's here to open the seals. Okay, the seals. Then you have seven trumpets sounding. And then you have seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out. And I think the general understanding, and I think it's wrong. The general understanding is that these are in sequence. So you have, you have the seven seals, and that takes you a certain length of time. And then after the seven seals, you have seven trumpets, and other things happen there. And then after seven trumpets comes seven bowls, and that takes you up to the end. The problem with that is, there is the end pictured after the seven bowls, and there's also... The end pictured after the seven seals. And the end is also pictured after the seven trumpets. The way I think it's best to read that is... You have seven seals. At the end of the seventh seal... You have 
seven trumpets. The seven trumpets make up the sixth seal, if I can put it that way. And then at the end of the seventh seal, you have the seven bowls. So they all end at the same place. And that's why when you read the book of Revelation, and and people have to come up with weird interpretations to make it work, you don't have three second comings of Jesus. You have the seven seals that lead up to the second coming. Then you have the seven bowls that lead up to the second coming. Seven uh, trumpets, rather. And then the seven bowls. They they, uh, compound each other. They end at the same time. And that's why it looks like you have three second comings. Because it's at the end of the seven seals, Jesus comes. And at the end of the seven trumpets, Jesus comes. And at the end of the seven bowls, Jesus comes. But that's because those things all end at exactly the same time. Did I make that kind of clear to you? So the things pile up at the end is what I'm saying. The seven bowls are poured out very rapidly. The seven seals cover a whole period of history. The seven trumpets, a slightly shorter period, and then the seven bowls bang at the end, but they all lead up to the second coming. So what you have in the book of Revelation is a series of visions. So you can't just take events and say, well, this one happens in chapter 10, and this one happens in chapter 14, so the stuff in chapter 10 happens first. You can't do that in Revelation. Because John's having a vision in chapter 10, and a totally different one in chapter 14. Am I confusing you or are you okay? All right. Each of those three series of judgments, seals, trumpets, bowls, brings us right up to the end of this age. E. So between the descriptions of the second and third series of judgments... Seals, bowls. You, you get these two pictures, like a picture-in-picture picture on a TV. Passages describing how the church fares on earth during these dramatic times. And so these two visions are revelations of the significance of these difficult times for the church. Specifically for the church. That's in chapters 10 and 11 of Revelation, and in chapters 12 to 14. Remember, those two passages deal with activities that occur while the judgment of God is being poured out. Think of it as like a picture in picture. F, these accounts of the series of judgments are followed by a picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ, the glories of the final kingdom, Chapters 19 through 22. We will get to all of those things. It'll be a while. We'll work our way through all of those prophecies and future pictures and future events as best we can. But I want to say again that the purpose of the book of Revelation, when John gets these visions and he's told to make sure these visions get read aloud to these seven churches, the Holy Spirit knows none of them are going to be around for these events. Right? Why do they need to hear about this? And the reason is 
there are principles here of, of our sovereign Lord, his role over history, his role over circumstances, his role in trial and tribulation and difficulty. Christians living life under painful conditions. And so it's a revelation of Jesus himself right now. It's given, first of all, to John. John is in exile. John is basically alone on a tiny Greek island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. Patmos was a Roman colony used exclusively for punishment. About four miles square. Even to this day, it's not on all maps. John tells his readers he was on an island called Patmos, verse 9. You only use words like that when you're quite sure no one's going to know the place you're talking about. I was on an island called Patmos. So it comes to John. John suffering for being faithful to the Lord Jesus and to the word. But it's not just for John. It's for these seven churches that are in Asia. That's in verse 4. Local churches, just like ours, and as you read, we will, they're facing intense persecution. Not not somewhere down the road in the tribulation, but right as John speaks to them, they are up against it. For no other reason than their faithfulness to the Lord, and some of them carelessness and idolatry and things they allowed to creep in. John tries to comfort them by reminding them that he too is experiencing the same kind of persecution they are facing. That's why he says, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation. We don't do that. I say, greet those around you. Do you ever turn around and say, hi, I'm just your fellow brother in life's misery. So good to see you in church. Your brother, your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That John. I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Do you ever, do you ever try to serve Jesus and be faithful to him the very best you can, and you find out that Unlike some of the worship courses that I am free and I am healed and I am delivered in Jesus' name, you find out that life gets worse the more you try and follow Jesus. Anybody else ever found that? Let me see your hand. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of us. Do you ever experience bitterness, mistreatment from other people? Do you ever feel you can't seem to crawl out from whatever circumstances are on your back? Then this revelation, John says, this is for you. Your partner in suffering. John says. The point of the revelation of Jesus isn't just for people who will be alive when Jesus comes again. John, John never saw most of the events described in his visions. He never saw them. But but the point of the revelation was still exactly what they needed to hear. These visions and the revelation of Jesus Christ my understanding is they should function for me right now and for you right now as as a lens through which you look at your world presently. A lens through which you view 
life because it's frequently hard to understand. And you frequently get persecuted just for following Jesus. And it frequently doesn't get easier, but gets harder. And you frequently don't get your way. And you're frequently mistreated by other people. I want to look at a few key points as we, as we kind of wind her up. Well, we're not quite winding up. That might have been a little misleading. One, point number one. A special blessing is pronounced on both the reader and the hearer. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the, for the time is, is near. There was no way that the people would read about John's vision. They don't have what we have. So of course, blessing comes as this account is read aloud in these seven churches. John says, make sure this gets read to the people. There's, there's tremendous power in hearing the word and remembering the word. Just listening, these people, without any copy to take home, it would be enough to bring great blessing into their lives. Never, ever take for granted the power of reading and hearing God's word. We read it together this morning in church. Do you remember what it was about? Do you see how we get with hearing God's word? Two, the description of Jesus Christ is designed to establish hope and courage for the visions that are to follow. That's in four and five. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins in his own blood. Seven spirits doesn't mean that there's seven holy spirits or you can carve him up into seven parts, like you could divide a slice of butter or something like that. There are, this letter is going to go to seven churches and John has a vision. It's, it's a vision. You have to keep telling yourself that. What better way of picturing that all of God's spirit is present in each congregation than this picture of seven spirits, right? That, that it's not a matter of the spirit divides himself. So we're in Newmarket. We get a little bit of God's spirit here. And so there's a church somewhere, uh, you know, in Saskatchewan. And so the, God breaks off a little bit of his spirit there. And then one in Vancouver and some in the Maritimes. But it gets pretty thin by the time he has to be in all these churches. No, the picture here is seven churches, seven spirits, all of God's spirit present, right here. That's, that's what the vision is meant to kind of uh, proclaim. To establish hope and courage, here are some thoughts. The greatness of Jesus' presence and power transcends any one particular age or season of life and history. Do you see those words? He is the one who is who was and who is to come. And that means his presence can't be located or limited to any one moment or era. Don't we do that sometimes? Oh, don't, oh if only we could have walked where Jesus walked. And if only we could have been there when, when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. And if only we could have been there when he called Lazarus out of the grave. Or we think of some great era of revival or divine presence with some kind of nostalgia that would kind of deposit the work of the Lord in one era more than 
another. This letter, this letter from Jesus himself, tells us that he's, he's the Lord of all ages and all history. It's repeated again in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Apparently we need to hear that over and over again. You don't live in an era where, where there is diminished divine resource for you now because of the passing of time since Jesus walked this earth. That, that's the point of those words. B, Jesus is described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's in verse 5. And there's a reason. There's a reason this description of Jesus Christ comes before the unfolding of all those visions in the book of Revelation. This is, this is the Holy Spirit's way of saying... Don't even study the rest of this book until you have this picture of Jesus clearly nailed down in your mind that whatever struggle is around the corner, whatever is going to be forthcoming, Jesus has gone before it, is in control of it, and will be here after it. It's stated at the beginning of everything else that will be unfolded because God is over all. We, we are not to judge God's ultimate plan by our present circumstances. We are not to let hope be shaken by our own fear of future circumstances. The third thing said is, Jesus is the faithful witness. That's in verse 5. Think about John just for a minute. John knew the Lord pretty well. And now he's virtually alone. There'd be very few people, perhaps a guard or two on this tiny little... He's alone. And you start to go a little crazy. And... He's aware because he keeps telling himself this. He's, he's just here for his testimony to Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to the word. And this is what it's gotten him. So, so here's John in a set of circumstances that make the faithfulness of Jesus look questionable. And you know what that's like. And so the Lord speaks, he gets this vision, and, and the one thing that is said to John about the Lord is he's, he's the faithful witness. There will always be things in your life and mine in this present age that argue against the truth of God's word, the faithfulness of God's promise, the reliability of Christ. There will always be things that argue against that. And that's why we get this revelation of Jesus at the beginning of everything that's about to unfold. John's going to see it. He's not even going to understand it. Who can fathom all the things John is going to see? He's the faithful witness. You can trust the Lord. Oh, I could talk more about that. D, Jesus is identified as the firstborn from the dead. That's a wonderful phrase. 
you're reading through your Bible, and you realize there are different circumstances related to physical death. You have people like Enoch, Elijah are translated. There are others who died and were raised from the dead. Several, but let's say Lazarus. And they all died again, those ones. Those who were translated, as far as we know, on the earthly scene, never tasted death. They've had no experience with it. Those who were raised to life, like Lazarus, only to die again, they experienced death, but they never conquered it. So these people never tasted it. These people who were raised never conquered it. Jesus is described as the firstborn from the dead. That is, he, unlike Enoch and Elijah, he fully experienced death. But unlike Lazarus and others, he never died again. So he experienced death fully, but conquered it. The firstborn from the dead. That he conquered death is good news, but it's not the best news. The best news is that he's, he's called the firstborn from the dead. What that means is, other people will conquer death through him. So we got four Horbin boys. Paul, Peter, Ed, Don. If, if uh, my oldest brother Paul, just an old man now, man oh man. You could introduce him as the firstborn, right? But if he were the only one, you probably wouldn't say, this is Paul, the firstborn of the Horbin boys. Because he's the only one born. When Jesus is called the... This is good news, church. When Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead... What that means is, in spite of all the stuff coming... There are some horrific passages we're going to be looking at. In spite of all that, those in Christ... He's the firstborn from the dead. Paul calls it the first fruits. To the church at Corinth. We will participate in that. That's, that's the meaning of verse 18. The living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the, the keys of death and Hades. I, I can unlock this. Three. The kind of redeemer we worship every Sunday... You go through 9 to verse 20. I'm not going to read all of that. They unfold this living picture, like a, a video clip of the image of Christ. John experiences this vision on the Lord's Day, it says. Rome celebrated Emperor's Day when all citizens celebrated the emperor's accession to the throne of Rome. And it's fitting, eh, that these Christians quickly found a way to declare the lordship of Jesus as the ultimate authority of their life on the Lord's day. The picture that unfolds here is really breathtaking, and we have to zip through it. He's robed not in tattered rags of the cross or the swaddling clothes of the manger, 
but in a regal robe and a sash of divine authority. That's in verse 13. So he's, he's no longer the babe in the manger. He now has all authority in heaven and earth. That's what John sees, okay, in this vision. B, eyes like a flame of fire. That's in 14. Nothing, nothing hidden from his sight. That's comforting. He knows what I'm facing. He knows what I'm going through. It's cautioning. He knows pretense. God knows when I'm faking. God knows when I pretend to be more spiritual in front of you than I am when I'm by myself. The, 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 the piercing. Seeing, not just seeing, but seeing, seeing through. He's never confused. Nothing is unknown. See, feet were like burnished bronze. What is that all about in verse 15? Burnished bronze means hardened in a refiner's furnace. And that's significant. All places in Revelation where, and in the prophets in the Old Testament where the, the grapes of God's wrath are trodden underfoot. It's a scary passage. D, his voice was like the sound of many waters, verse 15. You get, you get, this, you get this picture of, of the power of the word of Christ. Above all the din and the noise of history, all the opposition that comes, Christ's voice, too powerful to be finally ignored. Blows away all opposition. We don't see that yet. But it's coming. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword. E, that's in verse 16. So it's not, it's not just its volume, like many waters, but, but, it's, but its effect. It, it accomplishes its purpose. It, it, it cuts through all argument. It destroys all opposition, as the rest of this vision will, will reveal. Four. The Jesus we're not quite ready for or maybe accustomed to, 17 and 18. When I saw him, and it's just a vision, I fell at his feet as though dead. He laid his, his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and, and Hades. So this is John. This is not, whatever your view is of being slain in the spirit, please don't use this text. That's not what's happening here. This is John just weak in the knees, terrified. Fear not. Never forget that the man who fell over at this the sight of this vision of Jesus in glory was quite possibly, quite possibly, on the human side of things, the man who was closer to Jesus than any human being on earth. John. I'm just talking on a physical level. Spent more time with Jesus, knew Jesus better than anyone else on the planet. In other words, the, the, the man who fell over like a dead man at the sight of Christ in glory was a man who was no stranger to Jesus, but a 
dear close friend. And I, I try, I'm no better at it than you, but I try to remind myself every time I, like John, come to Jesus on the Lord's day. I, I try, I want it to be loving. I want it to be intimate. I want it to, to draw me into his presence. But I try, I try hard to remind myself that if I ever caught a glimpse of him right now, I don't think I could handle it. In other words, I want worship to be infinite, drawing me into his presence, but it's not chummy. not chummy. I had a guy he spoke to. I was at a conference in California and I talked with a guy who told me and the Bible says he, he, we, we call him, he's brother Jesus. And it's not true. What the Bible says is he's not ashamed to call us brethren, but I don't call him brother Jesus. I call him Lord. Oh, how we need the reminder that every time we come into this place, we are coming to one who we, who we almost couldn't bear to look at in his blazing glory if he stood before us. That it's, it's not this, what we're doing here, never is ordinary, even if we think it's ordinary. Notice the implication of the location. It says he turned. This is uh, 12 and 13. I turned to see the voice. He hears this voice. He turns to see who's speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This is the picture of Jesus as he walks among the churches. He tells us that those lampstands are seven churches. Jesus is always in his church. You might not love going to church regularly. Jesus does. He has this, he has this special interest. Again, those seven congregations aren't just the body of Christ that Jesus loves. Those are congregations, gathering points for believers. John says, when you want to you see where he is, go to church. I'm not saying that's the only place he is. But when Jesus comes to manifesting his life and power and presence and grace, you want to find him, go to church. He walks among the churches. Oh, I know. He's at the mall. I haven't had very many profound spiritual experiences at the mall. I've had some idolatrous ones. Your best bet for encountering the living Christ is coming here. Here. And don't let anybody tell you different. Let's pray.